music, politics, and all things community. Yes! Join me, Ambrose Lane Jr., as we uncover the issues of D.C. communities east of the river on To the East, Mondays at 5 p.m. right here on your station for Jazz and Justice, WPFW 89.3 FM. I'm Wiza Muntali, host of African Now, and you're tuned to member-supported WPFW Washington. And welcome to Community Watch and Comment for Tuesday, February 27th. I'm Dave Raven, joined by Ray of Valencia, my esteemed and beloved <laughs> partner. We have a big show for you coming up. What would Biden's Israel-Gaza policy mean for his campaign, or what could it mean? Tuesday's Michigan primary, that today is an early test. We'll speak with Jewish Voice for Peace Action. Barbara Weinberg of Bearfield, and we'll talk with the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute's Erica Williams about D.C.'s child tax credit, which she asserts is an important tool for tackling child poverty. This is a bill on the table, very, very important for the children of the district, in my opinion, and the opinion of uh, the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. And March is Women's History Month, and the Washington Master Chorale will be performing Our Women People, a vocal cycle based on texts from the suffragist movement. Uh, we'll be joined by the chorale's Thomas uh, uh, Callahan. And <coughs> excuse me, Expax Theater is doing a satirical comedy, believe it or not, entitled Migrants, or There's Too Many of Us on This Damn Boat. I checked. The damn is not one of the seven uh, fan <laughs> words. We'll speak with expats, Green Rosnicek. Uh, but first, uh, let's have a moment of silence uh, for the horror the people of Gaza are experiencing. And before we go to our first guest, uh, we want to thank you for your generous support of uh, this program and more importantly, clearly uh, WPFW uh, <laughs> during our recent fundraising drive. We really, truly, honestly, sincerely, all the uh, appropriate adjectives appreciate your uh, uh, helping us out here. We're listener-sponsored. We you don't have to listen to an inundation of commercials, but we do need to come to you ever so often for your support to keep the lights on. We really appreciate your help. And uh, and I want you to know that tomorrow WPFW is celebrating those whose shoulders this station stands on. History is so important, and we have a wonderful history, and we want you to know about it. We'll be presenting Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz mm -hmm. and Justice Radio from 5 a.m. until midnight tomorrow. Uh, we'll take a look at, at the work and legacy of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee 
and the pivotal role many SNCC members played in the creation of our wonderful Jazz and Justice WPFW. We will also be honoring one of SNCC's beloved daughters of the movement, Dory Ladner. So please listen in tomorrow to Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC Dory Ladner and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. WPFW building other world one broadcast at a time and on with the show take it away dear ray okay the self-immolation at the embassy on sunday afternoon outside the israeli embassy in washington dc a 25 year old air force service member aaron bushnell placed his phone on the ground to set up a live stream he then stood before the embassy gate and lit himself on fire while shouting free Palestine in a horrific protest against the Israeli Hamas war in Gaza. Hours before lighting himself on fire, Bushnell posted a Twitch link on his Facebook page with a caption which read, many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid what would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is, you're doing it right now. About a handful of states will determine the outcome of the 2024 presidential election in Michigan. And Michigan is one of those states. There is a push for a protest vote today in Michigan's Democratic primary. There's a grassroots movement to persuade voters to select uncommitted on Tuesday's ballot because of how the Biden administration has handled the war in Gaza. Eyes are on Michigan today. Will the protest vote become a factor in future primaries? Joining us today is Barbara weinberg Bearfield, member of Jewish Voice for Peace Action, Michigan supporter of the Listen to Michigan Uncommitted campaign and community activist. Good morning, Barbara. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Good morning, Ray and David. Thank you so much for having me. Great. And I would like to invite our listeners to call in and talk about the protest vote in the 2024 campaigns. Please call the station at 202-588-0893. Thank you so much. Um, Barbara, please give us a little background. Who started the campaign in Michigan and when did the movement start? And tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the campaign to support, um, to persuade voters to select uncommitted in today's primary. Thank you. Today is a really important day. It's a primary. A lot of people ignore primaries, but we are, we've been on the phone for weeks, calling people, emailing people, telling everyone we know, having phone banks and parties and opportunities to reach out to people to say, don't ignore the primary. Even if you're frustrated about what the choices are, it's important to go there and vote uncommitted. And the uncommitted vote is a, a way of us letting people know and letting President Biden know that we are not committed to voting for him for president if he is not committed to fighting and demanding a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and stopping the genocide and the horror that's happening in, in Palestine right now. So this campaign was really grassroots. It started mm -hmm. at the beginning of February in the minds of a few activists. Um, Leila Alabed and Abbas Alawaya are two of the leaders that helped to bring together an interracial, a multi-generational 
um, a multi-faith effort, grassroots from the bottom up, people coming together and saying, we've got to, Michigan is so important. We're really concerned that people are um, talking about either not voting or voting against President Biden. They can't support someone who's been um so supportive of the the war and the so it's a it's a vote for peace and that mm-hmm. is really how it's it came about. I learned about it in the beginning of February. There was a press conference and a launch on February sixth, and mm-hmm. I was the photographer. And we had a member, another one of my friends, Joshua Feinstein, who is with Jewish Voice for Peace Action Michigan, also spoke. But we had a rabbi, Rabbi Alana Alpert spoke. There were imams, there were students, there were people from all walks of life coming together and saying, we've been out on the streets protesting, we've been writing letters, we've been emailing, we've been sitting in our senator and our representative's office or protesting in front. We've been telling them what we want and they're not listening. So we think that there's some 80% of Democratic voters and a huge percent of the United States population who do want an end to this war and want a permanent ceasefire and a negotiated peace with justice for Palestine. This is another way we can get that message across to President Biden. Right. And, you know, news broke just last night that there's a tentative deal that would uh, bring a temporary ceasefire starting as soon as Monday. But you're saying you're you're seeking, you voters are wanting a permanent ceasefire. We want a permanent ceasefire and we want those billions of dollars that are going to purchase military equipment and killing people. Mm-hmm. We want that money to go for human rights, both in our country where people desperately need quality of life, support, water rights, good education, Mm -hmm. social services. There's so many needs and there's still so much poverty and need in our country for for those dollars. We don't want them spent on military equipment killing people. And and we need to really think about in the last few months since the beginning of October, 30,000 People, Mm. civilians have been Mm -hmm. massacred in Gaza. And two thirds of those people are women and children. We now know that there's some 17,000 children who were orphaned and traumatized. The people are absolutely traumatized. The emotional scars are going to be long and deep Mm -hmm. once the bombs stop dropping and they go back to the rubble that was once their homes and their families and their communities. This is devastation at a a level we cannot even imagine in our lifetimes has ever happened before. I know we find it completely horrifying. We've been covering this issue now for uh, since the beginning of the war. And last week we did a deep dive on APAC, the, the, um, Israeli Zionist organization and lobby group that has been really active in Michigan politics. They're very active, putting mm-hmm. millions of dollars into candidates. Um, and, and in some cases, candidates that are very unprogressive and, and reactionary and against human rights. We lost one of the best U.S. Congress people that we had in um, Andy Levin was an mm. exemplary congressperson congressperson. And his opponent received a great deal of APEC money and it it caused him to be defeated. But he is still a, He's active. an amazing yeah. activist. He was on MSNBC recently talking about 
how important it is to vote uncommitted, that this is an anti-war message. It's a message for humanity. It's not, we, we still, you know, people are saying, well, if you vote uncommitted, mm-hmm. um, isn't that going to make it very difficult for Biden to get reelected? We don't want a republic. We don't want Trump to be. We don't elected. want Trump. Would be right. Even more, that could be even more devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're saying, it's we still have many more months till November rolls around. President Biden can do the right thing. He can change course. He can demand a ceasefire and use the power of the United States, which is enormous, to um, obtain a negotiated peace with justice for Palestinians. There is a way out of this. If we're brilliant enough to mm-hmm. go out into space and do all mm-hmm. of the amazing scientific feats, we can use our brains and are not our bombs to get peace in this world. So that's Absolutely. our President Biden, you, Michigan wants you to listen to us. Listen to Michigan. Listen to Michigan. Change Absolutely. course. You have time to get our votes back. We're uncommitted now, but we may we can if you can change your course of action, we can as well. And I think that's a frustration for many is that the Democratic Party does this thing where they decide who the nominee is going to be. And they tell the Democrats uh, it's the lesser of two evils. Vote for Biden because we can't afford to have another Trump term. Right. And I'm right. I'm, you know, your vote is your agency. You know, you have to earn that. To assume that people are just going to vote for you every time because that's what the party wants, I think is has been something that's kind of worked in the past, but failed in 2016 to a large extent because many Democrats were not happy with the idea of Hillary Clinton, right? And that Bernie Sanders was kneecapped by the Democratic Party, and now they're bolstering uh, um, uh, Biden as a, as a forced choice for Democrats. So we're really looking at Michigan. And this vote at this protest vote to see if it catches on and we're going to see this pattern emerge in, uh, in future primaries. I, ho- I hope that's the case. And, you know, we elect officials to go to Washington to represent us and then they forget about us. They they have to represent us when we demand that they are anti-war and they call for a permanent ceasefire. Mm-hmm. They've, they've got to listen to us and if they don't, well, we've got the power of the vote. And, um, you know, apathy, we, we've got to deal with that apathy or that alienation people are starting to feel or anger that or rage that people are trying to mm-hmm. feel, are feeling that this is useless, that they, you know, they're not going to they're not going to vote at all. But we've got a power with our vote. It's been very hard earned power. Women don't know, didn't always have the power to vote. People of color didn't always have the power to vote. We have it and we've got to use it to make changes in this country. And right now we can use it. Today is the last day. We've in Michigan, we've been voting since February 17th because we've been able to vote early through absentee. We've been able to drop off our ballots in numerous community centers and, and boxes. But today is the last day, folks. You can get out and you can vote. And you can fill in the little box. There's little ovals, and there's one that says uncommitted. And that uncommitted oval is an anti-war statement. It's a statement to President Biden that we want a permanent ceasefire with a negotiated peace with justice for Palestinians. We need an end to this military might that's trying to 
destroy, really, it's on the verge mm-hmm. of destroying the world. It's not just mm-hmm. in Gaza, it's it's spreading. And we- Yeah, it's becoming this. a wider regional conflict. Right, yeah, we have right. got to stop this violence um, before, mm-hmm. now, now, mm-hmm. we really do. So Barbara, the campaign, what would you consider to be a success today? I mean, I hear in the press, uh, number 10,000 votes would be successful. And that number came about because- that's the margin in which uh, Biden beat Trump. And Trump uh, was won by the fewest votes in that state. So is 10,000 important to you or what would you consider a success for 10, today? 10,000 is important to me, but what's more important is that I'm sitting on the a phone call with you, a Zoom with you, mm-hmm. Ray, and getting this word out all over the country. Yesterday I sat in my home talking to um, a columnist for the New York Times and he's writing about it. Um, it's on NPR. It's all over the country. People are talking about how this is another way. We can do sit-downs. We can do protests. Mm-hmm. We can do rallies. We can be writing and calling and doing all of these different strategies to try to change the course of, of history right now. Here is another way we can show that we are for a ceasefire. We are for we're. Uh, anti-war. It's another way. So I'm not going to put a number on it. I think tonight when we find out, we're going to be overjoyed. It's going to be a powerful number. Um, But the fact that the word is getting out far and wide is really important. I mean, even around the world, people are looking at Michigan right now and seeing Mm -hmm. this this is powerful. Absolutely. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us today, and good luck with your endeavors. Joining us today is Barbara Weinberg-Bearfield. She's a member of the Jewish Voice for Peace Action, Michigan supporter of the Listen to Michigan Uncommitted Campaign and Community Activist. Thank, thank you so much, and thank have you a great remainder me. of the day. Thank you, Michigan. Thank you, Michigan. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Barbara. Really, really important. Uh, it's a big day today, and uh, we need democracy to raise its voice and its folks like uh, uh, Barbara in uh, Michigan that are are making that a reality. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for all you're doing. And on to our next guest. Child poverty in D.C. is higher than it is for the nation as a whole. Now, listen to this carefully. You know, it's, it's really kind of amazing. Over a third the black children in the district live below the poverty line. I mean, it's it's really important, I, I think, to to have that sink in. I mean, you hear a lot of figures and whatnot. A third of black children in the district live below the poverty line. Virtually all white kids in D.C. live above the poverty line. I mean, that's a pretty marked distinction. Propose a child tax credit bill. Uh, at the D.C. Council would help tackle childhood poverty. And according to uh, D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, the bill could be strengthened if certain suggestions are followed. And joining us to talk about the child tax credit and how it could be improved is the Institute's Executive Director, Erica Williams. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being with us. We're honored to have you. Thanks so much for having me, David. It's really great. It's it's great that you're there. It's great that the Fiscal Policy Institute is there. We welcome you, and we welcome caller 202-588-0893. That's 
we would love to have people chime in and contribute uh, to this really terribly important uh, issue that's right here. This is not off in uh, the Middle East. It's not off in Taiwan or wherever. This is right under our noses, and uh, we have a immediate serious stake in it. First of all, uh, Erica Williams, so what exactly is the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute? So DCFPI is a nonprofit research organization here in the district focused on how we can shape racially just tax budget and policy decisions uh, in D.C. Uh, with our council and our mayor to advance an anti-racist equitable future for the district. We are very focused on how we can um, tackle the problems that are facing so many black and brown children, families, residents here in D.C. so that we can have the city that I think we all want to live in where everybody really has the opportunity to live to their fullest and where all communities have the chance to, to thrive. Uh, right now, as as you noted with some of the data points that you lifted up, we're, we're not in that reality. Uh, we have big, big divides and disparities by race and ethnicity across all kinds of indicators, but poverty is, of course, one of them. And it's something that we actually can tackle here in D.C. Uh, with tools like a child tax credit. So happy to be here to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's really important. I mean, particularly, uh, I... I don't know how much attention it got to folks, but, you know, our news uh, outlets are diminishing here in D.C. I mean, uh, D.C., I was really relying on that. It wasn't perfect. I'm sure you have some qualms with it more than I do, following up more closely local politics. But, you know, I thought it was important. This is the digital uh, expression of uh, WAMU, and it's gone because it wasn't commercially viable. It wasn't... uh, uh, making uh, enough uh, money uh, for WMU, and I'm I'm not criticizing the decision, but you know we it just uh, I think uh, makes even more important uh, nonprofit groups such as the DC Fiscal Policy Institute that are bringing this kind of issue to the fore. I mean, I think there was one, maybe two articles about this bill on the child tax credit. Uh, in the post, and then that's it, you know. And people, right. I wasn't up to snuff on it till till I saw the post on on your important website. And uh, anyway, I I, I don't want to say it anymore, but I'm I'm very very uh, glad and supportive of the work that uh, your institute is uh, doing. If you could just uh, explain how the child tax credit works. I mean, I don't think we should assume that people understand how it, you know, what exactly does it does. It's a tax credit to taxpayers that empowers uh, uh, folks with the kids. Yeah. So the child tax credit uh, is a federal tax credit uh, that has, although many states now have their own version of it, that attempts to sort of support families as, you know, with the high cost of raising children. So um, families with kids can get up to $2,000 per child um, through the federal credit right now. Uh, That credit was massively expanded during the pandemic. And I think a lot of people did hear about sort of the power of the child tax credit to really reduce poverty. Uh, the, The credit was 
made available to everybody, regardless of how much income they had. If they had kids, qualifying kids, they were eligible for the full credit and the value of the credit was expanded to up to $3,600 per kid for some families. So it was very robust. It went to families that even had little to no income um, and no tax liability, income tax liability. So it was helping uh, all families with kids across the country make ends meet and sort of stay afloat through what was a big economic and health crisis that we experienced and continue to experience the, the reper repercussions of today. Uh, unfortunately, the federal credit has sh has shrunk again and now is no longer available to tens of thousands of kids in the district whose families have incomes that are too low to receive the full credit or too low to receive any credit from the from the federal government. So we have been looking at what we could do here locally to make sure that all families are getting the cash support they need to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to pay for the basics. And the data on how district residents use with low incomes use the, the federal child tax credit, the expanded child tax credit, shows that they did just that. For, for families with incomes under $30,000 a year, 97% of them focused that money on meeting basic needs, paying rent, paying bills, putting food on the table, um, and, and clothes on their kids' backs. So we know that we have a lot of hardship here in the district that has gone unaddressed, and this is one of the ways that we can get support to families get cash into their pockets to pay for those basic necessities. Um, I'd also just say that the federal credit research by Urban Institute showed that it reduced child poverty in the district in the, um, the year it was expanded by over 50%. So a big, robust credit, a big, robust cash infusion for a lot of families reduced child poverty substantially. I mean, I think it just shows right. that these are problems we can solve for if we have the will to do it. So um, we are really looking forward to advocating for a child tax credit for the district that is robust and can help us really take a whack at child poverty. So so the way that it actually functions is that, that you get a credit, you, you know, you, your taxes are reduced if you have a child or more. More than one child. I mean, that's the actual way that it functions. So, folks that aren't clear about that, right? It reduces but, uh, the, any no, income. Do taxes. I, I have that right? Yeah, it, it reduces income taxes yep. you owe. Uh, if you don't owe income taxes, you get it in the form of a refund. You get the full value of the credit in the form of. A refund. You actually get a refund if you don't have children. If okay. not, if you don't have children, if um, you don't have income tax liability. If you don't have. Oh, oh, okay, got it. Um. And uh, at the moment, uh, here in D.C., you said certain states have a uh, child tax credit uh, in addition to the federal uh, child tax credit, uh, which is, has been gone back to pre-pandemic uh, levels. Although I guess there maybe is, let's not spend time on it, I guess there's some action to maybe bring, uh, in increase that at the federal level, although with this zany Congress, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, you can't hear. You can't see Erica, but she's agreeing 
like, you know, who the blank knows what's going to go on there. But we at this moment do not have um, um, uh, our own DC based uh, child tax credit, but uh, Council Member Zachary Parker has introduced one uh, at uh, on on the council, and um, uh, just to get some contact, as as I said in the introduction, over a third of uh, of uh, black children in, in DC, thirty six percent to be exact, live below the poverty level versus all white kids in D.C. living above the poverty level. And uh, and I should say it's important if you could we could just talk, touch briefly the, uh, to make sure that we understand our terminology here because it, it can get, you know, a little bit uh, abstruse or whatever the right word is. Right. Uh, it's important to distinguish between income and wealth. If you could just talk about that difference briefly. Yeah, I think about income as, as, as what you have on hand through your wages, um, your earnings to meet your day-to-day needs, to pay your bills, to make sure you have a roof over your head. Wealth is often held in, um, is held in assets, right? Your home, if you are lucky enough to own one. Uh, investments for folks who have a lot of wealth. That's really where the the bulk of it is held. Um, Different kinds of investments like stocks and bonds or luxury items. Um, And I think of wealth as the thing that gives people uh, a lot of sort of choice and the ability to take risks and to sort of pursue their dreams um, without a lot of fear of um, you know falling through the cracks or failure. So I I think income is is sort of how we get by through our day to day, and wealth is the thing that can set us up and set our families up really for a a different kind of level of security and stability um, that folks without it don't have. You know, can really kind of support folks through any kind of up or down or economic shock. Um, so, so what we're talking about here with a child tax credit is a way to boost income. And I think it's a, it's a step on the road to uh, helping folks get to a place where they have enough financial security and stability to maybe be able to start um, saving and accruing wealth. Uh, and I do think that a child tax credit would be very, very complementary to our um our child savings account program or our baby bonds program, which uh, was put into law recently. So um, that is a program that would help folks, help children who are growing up in poverty, have a nest egg when they reach adulthood and have some wealth to um, leverage. And I think a child tax credit sets young people up to really benefit from uh, the baby bonds program later on down the road. Um, And there's a few reasons why. I mean, one of the things we know about income boosts for kids who are growing up in low income or poor households is that it can really have a big impact on their life trajectories. Kids who grow up in poverty, who aren't getting nutritious meals, who have a lot of stress in the home, who uh, maybe live in unhealthy or unsafe places, have a much harder time uh, doing well in school and, and and getting very far in life, we know that income boosts can actually um, help kids. There's lots of research around this. Help kids do better in school. It can improve ed- their test scores um, and their ec- 
uh, educational performance. It also can help them go farther in school and help them um, attain higher education. And that means that they're able to work and earn more as adults. So you can really change the life trajectory of kids by making sure that they have the income they need. Um, their families have the incomes uh, needed to sort of meet all their basic needs. So that really sets kids up, I think, well for being able in the district, if we have a local child tax credit, could help set them up um, well to be able to leverage the baby bonds uh, that will be there for them when they turn 18, right? They'll be better prepared, I think, to leverage those dollars for their futures, for their families' futures, um, if they're getting their needs met in the here and now today. You know, I was cut off. The internet seemed to be not working perfectly, at least at my end. So hopefully our, our dear listeners were hearing Erica Williams um, uh, talk about the the initiative, the legislation for a child tax credit here in the district. And I mean, part of the education that's going on with, with, with having you on is I didn't quite understand, and I'm not totally uninformed, but I didn't quite understand how uh, a child, a uh, possible child tax credit here in the district would dovetail with the baby bonds program. And uh, you were talking about it as I got back uh, in connection uh, via the internet, but just wanted to make sure that people understand. I was thinking of baby bond as something that, that goes to a baby. It's maybe not the greatest label uh, for the program, but it's, but this would dovetail particularly if, if the council takes on your suggestions, your recommendations for how to improve the legislation, but it, it dovetails. So uh, uh, a good child tax credit would take kids up to, would give them greater financial support up to 18. And then the baby bond uh, program, I think uh, uh, brought by a council member McDuffie uh, initiated that. If you could just uh, tell me if, if you already spoke about this. Forgive me. I was uh, you were frozen on me for a minute there. Uh, just how that dovetails, right? So the um, it sort of aligns with your your question about the difference between income and wealth. And so the child tax credit would be a way to sort of boost the incomes in the here and now for kids who are growing up in poor and low income families, making sure that they have the food they need, that they're going to school. Um, fed and ready to learn and that their, um, you know, families have what they need to pay rent and bills and so forth. Uh, all of that will improve uh, their sort of life trajectories, right? Like the, their ability to um, do well in school, to go farther in school, and hopefully to work and earn more as adults, right? And to sort of disrupt what can be a very cyclical um pattern with uh, poverty, where it crosses generations, right? When they turn 18, they will be better prepared uh, with, with income supports like the child tax credit. They'll be better prepared to leverage the baby bonds program, which is essentially a savings account or a wealth building account for kids in the district who are growing up in poverty. So when they turn 18, they'll have, you know, a chunk of cash, maybe $20,000, $25,000 at their disposal to use for education, to use for, um, you know, entrepreneurial ideas that they have, to use to buy a home if that's something they want to do. Um, and I, I think the two fit together because 
one helps kids in the here and now uh, and has implications for sort of uh, their outcomes once they reach adulthood. And the other makes sure that kids, when they become adults, have something, um, have a nest egg, have something that they can leverage for their future. It's huge. But, it's just, yeah, it's these are totally, great, great it's really important. I would also just note that- I mean, the, think about an 18-year-old, you know, $20,000 for a lot of us, it's not nothing, but an 18-year-old, you could use it for your education to buy a house. I mean, that's an extraordinary program, but I, I, we have five minutes left, four minutes left, so I should just let Remind folks, I'm listening, to, uh, you're listening to DC Fiscal Policy Institute's uh, Executive Director, uh, Erica Williams. Such So great having her on. So real quickly, Erica, if you could just run down the, uh, I know that you're largely supportive of the initiative by Council Member uh, uh, Parker, but, but what are your uh, uh, points on, 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 on strengthening it? Yeah, we are so lucky to have leadership on the council with uh, uh, Councilmember Parker really leading the charge to get a local credit uh, established here in the district. So we're we're really thankful for that leadership. I think he's got a good start. And uh, what we testified was that we would like to see a larger credit uh, going to kid, uh, families with the very lowest incomes. So um, we've proposed 1500 per child, but, you know, 1000 per child uh, would even be a better, uh, an improvement on the, the $500 per kids that he has proposed in his bill. We also think that the credit should extend to families with kids who, uh, to kids who are 17 years old too. The federal credit stops at 16, but we know that kids that are nearing uh, the age of sort of college eligibility are more likely to pursue higher education if they have some cash to work with to help them afford the expenses uh, associated with going to school, right? Um, we'd like to see the cap that he put on number of kids that would qualify for the credit eliminated. You know, this is about helping to make sure we're setting kids up um, for brighter futures. And I think you just can't put a cap on that. So we'd like to see that removed. Um, and we'd like to see, uh, you know, if cost is a trade-off here um, or, pre or presents a, a barrier to getting this adopted, we'd like to see the credit prioritized for families with low and moderate incomes and to not go as far up the income spectrum. Right. So, so we're running out of time. What's the couple of minutes left? What is the, the timetable on, on this legislation? So it's gone. It's gotten a hearing in front of the C committee on business and economic development. Um, I think it could move forward in a couple of ways. One is to uh, go through a markup in the committee and be passed out to um, be considered by the committee of the whole in the next couple of months, or it could get wrapped into the budget, uh, the budget bill as a as a whole, and be part of that conversation. So. Um, we're hoping to see it move forward this um, over the next couple of months. Um, you know, we have once the mayor's budget comes out later this in, in March, we will have about 55 days uh, for everything uh, that needs to happen this spring session to get passed. So um, if, if we see action on it, it'll be this spring. If not, it should be also 
um, there's a proposal within the tax revision commission's package um, and so should be taken up again in the fall or in or the following spring if it doesn't happen this this year but i hope uh, folks who are listening will call in and to their council members and and um show their support for for this credit it's it's really important that you let your council uh, members know uh, that uh, you support this extremely important uh, legislation. <laughs> Excuse me. And we're going to get Erica Williams of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute back, uh, I hope, by the end of March, or if not uh, in April, to talk about uh, uh, their support and insights into having some kind of a wealth tax uh, here in the district. I don't know if she mentioned it. I was out of uh, connection for a moment there. But uh, 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 white folks here in the district uh, have 81 times the wealth of, uh, of black folks. I think I think I have that right. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Ms. Williams. You do indeed, and I'll be happy to come back and talk I to mean, you. All it's just <laughs> an extraordinary gap. So we talk yeah. about gaps in, in income, but 81 times the wealth uh uh, 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 whites have here in the district versus uh, uh, African Americans. I mean, it's just it's staggering. Uh, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Erica Williams, DC Fiscal Policy Institute. Google them, follow uh, uh, their posts. An extraordinarily important organization here in our in our district. Thank you for joining us today. Nice to be with you all. Thanks. Really appreciate it. And on to our next wonderful guest in celebration of Women's History Month, the critically acclaimed, highly acclaimed Washington uh, Master Corral on March 3rd at D.C.'s National Presbyterian Church includes the vocal cycle, Are Women People? The piece is based on texts from suffragist uh, movement, including the 19th Amendment, uh, which brought us... Uh, a woman's right to vote and a Susan B. Anthony speech. And joining us now to talk about Are We People is the Washington Master Corral's artistic director and conductor, Thomas uh, Callahan. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, David. Thank you for having me. It's it's really great having you. Uh, you uh, artists around the city, around the country, around the world are are the ballast of civilization. We really appreciate <laughs> Thank all you, you do. I, I know <laughs> yeah, that, I know we do our best. The, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know but, you're in it for the, for the big bucks. Uh, yeah. Thomas, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, flowing right. in the money. Uh, you're, yeah, you're, not, yeah. you're not a big part of that uh, wealth equation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, are we, uh, are women people sounds like a wonderful way to celebrate women's history composed by uh, Lori Leitman. If you could just talk about uh, the piece, I mean, singing the 19th Amendment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, a, what a wonderful way to honor that extraordinary event. Yeah, well, so so the, we're really lucky to, to have this composer, Lori Leitman. She's really 
renowned uh, throughout the the nation, and she lives here in Washington, uh, in the in the Washington region, uh, and she's just a she she's well known for for her vocal music primarily primarily and also well she's written many beautiful works. Uh, but she, uh, the, the, her vocal works are extraordinary. Her vo her solo vocal works, and also she has written a number of operas. And she wrote this work in 2016, uh, and it was premiered in 2017 for the hundredth anniversary to celebrate a women's right, uh, women's right to vote in New York. This uh, suffrage in New York, and then it led to the 19th Amendment about three years later. All of these women in New York. In particular, Susan B. Anthony, uh, but others as well, of course. And you know, much like uh, your previous guest, I noticed uh, with Erica that um, you know so much of social change occurs beginning at the local level. This is how that works, you know, right? So you get things accomplished and then start to move it to the national level, and that's what happened here. That's what happened with the women's right to vote. These women in New York just worked very, very hard. And so what Lori's done here is ingenious. Um, I, I have the great privilege of knowing Lori as a friend and she's an extremely funny person. And uh, so what she's done is she's taken these texts which are really extraordinary and they're ba the primary texts are from a woman named Alice Dewar Miller. And she was a, a prominent author at the time and she had a newspaper column in a, in a, in a publication called the New York Tribune. And that column was called Our Women People. And it was a way of kind of provoking people, you know, kind of like the modern version of clickbait, you know, right? <laughs> if, you, right if, you, if you saw this, our women people, then it would make people read. So basically, she spent about three years writing uh, and most a lot of satirical poems, but also commentary. And it was quite influential. It was sort of deft in, in the way that it influenced thinking. And what she would often do is she would take quotes from the speeches of what were called the anti suffragists. These were the folks who were opposed, men and women, who were opposed to women having the right to vote. And then she would sort of use a line from their speech and then she would write a very funny poem to, to sort of disarm it, if you will, right? And so I can give you a good example. Uh, this, like, one of them is called Warning to Suffragists. Okay, so it says, the Latin <laughs> man, right? So this line, the Latin man, in this case, refers to like the Harvard man or the Yale man. This is kind of what that means in the 19th century. So the line here by Anna H. Shaw, who was an anti-suffragist, or perhaps she was a suffragist quoting, the Latin man believes that giving women the vote would make her less attractive. <laughs> so, so then she says, so then Alice Dewar Miller writes this poem, they must sacrifice their beauty who would do their civic duty, who the polling booth would enter, who the ballot box would use. As they drop their ballots in it, men and women in a minute lose their charm, the antis tell us. <laughs> but the men have less to lose. <laughs> so, oh my. Right. I mean, that. You know, we are, we've got to get you back. I mean, it's, it's so wonderful that you're injecting this into uh, your program. And it's going to be on March the 3rd at 5 p.m. at the National Presbyterian Church. Need to have you on for a longer interview in the near future. You're doing wonderful things. Yes. And it's just, just to it's say great. It's, it's this kind of, she wrote this kind of funny 19th century parlor music, and it's kind of demented, sort of misguided modern music, but very, right. very funny. And then the other right. music on the program is is other sort of legit, uh, uh, music from that period, the Brahms, Liebesleader, and these Rossini right. masks. So it's going to be a fun and program. 
I, I, I've actually sung at least some of the Brahms, and it's, oh, it's yeah. extraordinarily beautiful. Beautiful was, music. And written Brahms, as basically. Brahms was like, uh, he was uh, the ultimate Viennese uh, uh, romantic. He was, uh, and it's he. Just absolutely gorgeous. I think gorgeous he music. A, and he had a great. A, a Viennese cafe by saying something like, if I. If I fail to insult someone here tonight, I apologize. Yes, that's right. I mean, a great just, sense of humor himself. Just, yes. <laughs> oh, just terrific. So yeah. check out, go to Google WashingtonMasterChorale.org. They are a nonprofit, and they are absolutely wonderful. Do check them out uh, for this March 3rd and uh, concert and other concerts that they are uh, presenting. I've been speaking with Washington Master Corrals. Artistic Director and Conductor Thomas Callahan, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate all you're doing. Oh, my pleasure, David. Thank you for having us. Take care. Okay, take care. And on to our last uh, uh, wonderful uh, guest, uh, DC's Atlas Performing Arts Center uh, is uh, presenting uh, uh, a play uh, uh, by our beloved uh, X-Pac Theater and is staging a satirical comedy. My grants, uh, are there too many of us on this damn boat? It's running from uh, March 16th to April 7th at uh, the Atlas Performing Arts Center, and we're joined now by expats, artistic director, and the plays director, Karen Rosnizek. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, David, and thank you so much for having me. It's great having you, and it's so, so excited by all that you're doing, you are an extraordinary addition to our theatrical artistic life here um, uh, in the district. Real quickly, what is what is Expects? What are you all about? Uh, you describe yourself uh, as a small theater grappling with big ideas. Yes, um, small because you know we have a it's a small size, and um, we're only doing two plays a year. But the aim is to bring international plays to DC, uh, mostly plays that are by contemporary playwrights and that have um, a, you know, a theme or um, a perspective that is not necessarily um, the mainstream per perspective here. And the uh, topics are definitely, you know, political topics, mo more or less. Uh, in this case, with migrants, definitely, um, migrants is a play about migration, and uh, the theme is all over the place right now. Uh, even though it has been written in 2016 and as a, as a response to the 2015 um, so-called refugee crisis. But um, yeah, Expats has done, is this the fifth play, I think, um, that we're doing, or sixth play? And um, this one uh, is, for a change, a comedy, but it's a dark comedy, and the focus is on dark, because um, that play really shows um, the plight of the migrants in all kinds of variations. Um, these are the the people that are most vulnerable, uh, as vulnerable as you can imagine, because they have no lobby, they have no identity, they have no, um, because, you know, their passports are stolen as well. They they basically have to trust the most criminal of the criminal. They are exploited, they are dehumanized. And uh, this play actually humanizes what we mostly know as the so-called refugee crisis um, and uh, gives us a human perspective to um that situation um, in 
I mean, the play goes mostly uh, into the European themes, but I will also, and this is kind of my director's pinpointing, to um, you know have have a couple of hints to uh, what the situation is in the U.S. by uh, you know various stylistic means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it, the, the play is written uh, by Frenchman and uh, largely focusing. From what I understand, I haven't seen it yet on, you know, the the, the uh, horrific uh, situation with uh, uh, migrants crossing the Mediterranean. Where last year, over two thousand, two and a half thousand people died. I mean, it's tragic, extraordinarily tragic. And you see, it's it's challenging. It's a dark comedy about something so tragic, but it's humanizing the, the, these individuals. I'm reminded of the there's the famous uh, Joe Stalin quote. A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths uh, are a statistic, exactly. and and uh, exactly. uh, you know this is you're you're making the situation real. You're making these people real, and uh, it, it just uh, it's just it's very timely that you're bringing this play to DC audiences. Yeah, I think it's it's very topical. Um, I mean, the world is having the most important elections this year, not only D.C., but there are a lot of places this world that, that really decide which way we're going. And the right-wing populists are rising and the xenophobia is rising. And that is also, you know, what is uh, a topic in the play, that how politicians um, instrumentalize uh, or, you know, uh, the plight of migrants or just use them in the power play or use them as a bargaining chip for their... Uh, negotiations, especially in Europe, when when one country says to the other, "Hey, you know, if you don't do what I want, I'm gonna throw you a couple of millions of refugees over." You know, so it's 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 just um, they're just this big mass, anonymous mass that nobody really sees or cares about because it's also we can't grasp that. Um, but uh, the thing is that that most of the time they are referred as a threat. Uh, to somebody who takes their jobs away or takes right. something away. And the message, basically, for me, uh, of this play is that we're all in the same boat and we have to start sharing the space. Yeah, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, forgive me, the, the the disadvantage of having a dog and with uh, uh, doing it remotely from home, so it goes. Uh, and I but, just so quickly to... give you a code for your Please. listeners where they get tickets for $25 with the code MIGRANTS, uh, capital letters, at www.atlasarts.org. So, uh, give that code again, if you would. MIGRANTS, all capital letters. Yes. And that gives you tickets for $25. Wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank you so, that so opportunity. Much. Uh, we've been speaking with XMAC Artistic Director and the Plays Director, Karen Rosnizek. Uh, go to their website at XPACs Theater and very, very much a dot org. Uh, that's going to do it for uh, today's show. Thanks to Mike Nacella uh, for his wonderful engineering expertise. Got the news lines and uh, the news. Uh, headlines are uh, coming up and we lot the incredible lady mirror after that uh, thank you so much for listening for Ray Valencia and myself Dave Raven uh, we thank you for listening stay safe have a good week
from WPFW News in Washington, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today is Tuesday, February 27th. Here are some headlines. Democrats and Republicans are competing in today's presidential primaries in Michigan. On the Republican side, an expected win by former President Donald Trump against rival Nikki Haley could add to his sweep of the early voting states and move him closer to becoming his party's nominee. President Biden is the clear Democratic front-runner, but is facing a test of his support among voters angry about his support for Israel's war in Gaza. A coalition of Arab American and Muslim leaders alongside progressives in the state are urging Democrats to vote uncommitted in the primary as a form of protest against Biden. Michigan's primary is the final major race on the election calendar before Super Tuesday on March 5th. President Biden suggested in comments yesterday that a ceasefire in Gaza could be at hand, saying that Israel has agreed to pause its offensive during the upcoming Muslim holy month of Ramadan if a deal is reached to release some hostages held by Hamas. Under the deal brokered by the United States, Egypt, and Qatar, Hamas would free some of the dozens of hostages it holds in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners and a six-week halt in fighting. During the temporary pause, negotiations would continue over the release of the remaining hostages and additional Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Both Israel and Hamas today downplayed the idea that a breakthrough was imminent, and global concerns are growing that Israel will move ahead with a full-scale incursion into Rafah, where over a million people are sheltering in crowded conditions, lacking food, water, and medicine. Israeli President Netanyahu said Sunday that a truce with Hamas would delay, not prevent, a ground invasion of Rafah. Egypt has warned that if that happens, it would have catastrophic repercussions for peace in the Middle East. And U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan also warned caution, stating Sunday, quote, We've been clear that we do not believe that an operation, a major military operation, should proceed in Rafah unless there is a clear and executable plan to protect civilians, to get them to safety, and to feed, clothe, and house them. And we have not seen a plan like that. Close quote. And vigils were held in Washington and elsewhere yesterday for Aaron Bushnell, an active-duty U.S. Air Force member who died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington to protest the genocide in Gaza. The 25-year-old from San Antonio, who live-streamed his self-immolation, yelled Free Palestine as he was consumed by flames. A similar protest against the Gaza war occurred in December when a person set themselves on fire outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta. Police recovered a Palestinian flag at the scene and called it 
a likely act of political protest. As the war in Gaza nears its fifth month, nearly 30,000 people in Gaza, two-thirds of them women and children, have died in the fighting, according to Gaza's health ministry. And in weather today in Washington, D.C., it is 63 degrees, partly cloudy. Rain is likely after 3 p.m., 